I don't know about you, but there is something about Table Mountain that refreshes my soul. I made the trip with a few of our friends earlier this spring, saw incredible wildflowers, got to hang out with some cow friends of ours, and it is just a beautiful place. It's amazing. You could go out there and walk uh, a little ways and you're away from everyone else. And there is something about wilderness. There's something about creation that teaches us and shows us what is holy. It shows us what is beautiful. And we begin to see the glory of God in everything because we spend time in the wilderness. Now, a few years ago, I think it was 2013, I got to experience a wilderness of a different kind, that South Judean wilderness. This is in the the country of Jordan, so it's not far from where David was uh, seeing wilderness. It's fairly similar. It's not far from there. But there is something about Wadi Rum that all of a sudden you begin to realize what you're thinking, what you're feeling, and the silence of the place where you can just hear the wind whipping in your ears and the sand pushing against your feet and your legs, and you think this is a holy place. We were created by God to connect with him through nature. So many of you know that. So many of you probably feel more alive when you're in nature than you do when you're in church, in a church building. And there's something that God wants to share and teach each of us in these alone places, in these lonely places. You think about Moses, who spent 40 years being a shepherd in the wilderness. God was shaping him to be a shepherd of God's people. It took him 40 years of training to get ready for that. He had 40 years before that. He had 80 years of training completely before he was ready to teach and, and, and move God's people out of the promised land. Jesus only needed 40 days in the wilderness to work through a few things where God was shaping him, where he was tempted uh, by the enemy of our soul. And it seems like every good leader is shaped in the wilderness. And maybe that wilderness is actual, like you got trapped out there in the middle of nowhere, or it's in the wilderness of the silence of wherever you are. God is shaping us and teaching us valuable lessons. And when I think about the wilderness and David, I think about the wilderness actually being David's greatest years were in the wilderness. I believe that he was more obedient. He was more in touch with who God was. And he was so in touch with who God was that what we're going to see in our passage today was that David could actually even see the glory in Saul, even though Saul was out to kill him. He could see what was precious in his life and he dared not take it in his own hands. So David's spending these years running from Saul in the Judean wilderness and these, this is not time wasted. It's actually time well spent because God is shaping him and teaching him valuable lessons so that he could be the king. He's gonna be the king that all other kings after him will be compared to. He's the standard. He's the man after God's own heart. When he reflects on the wilderness, he says things like this in Psalm 63, verse 1. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. 
the wilderness is this place where David feels most close to God. It's where he, I believe, is most obedient. And what we're going to see as we continue this series, Lessons from Three Kings, if you're new or just joining us today, talking about King Saul, the first king of Israel, then King David, who's not quite the king yet, but he's already been anointed as the future king. And then the last one will be King Solomon, David's son. So as David spends time in the desert, he learns to see the beauty and the glory in things and in people. And he actually spares Saul's life. He has an opportunity to kill Saul and to be done with this problem of running, but he doesn't do it. Spoiler alert. Twice in this passage. While on the desert, he's certainly tested by this foolish man named Nabal who dishonors him. And David learns that God is sovereign and God's timing is perfect and he shouldn't, God shouldn't be helped by David by eliminating Nabal or forcing things. Ultimately, as David is tempted and tested and being shaped by God, we are in similar ways being tempted and tested. God doesn't tempt anyone, but he certainly uses obedience checks and these faith challenges to help us to grow. He doesn't set us up to fail. We're going to see that again today in the passage. So three places today we're going to visit. We're going to be in a cave in Judea, one of my favorite places to be. We're going to meet a man in Carmel, and we're going to spend the night in the desert. You ready? Here we go. Cave in Judea, turn to 1 Samuel 24. That's where we are in our journey. We've been journeying since January. This has been a great journey. Love it. It's going to take most of the year, by the way. So settle into the Old Testament. Enjoy it. David and his men, about 600 of them, were hiding in caves in the Judean desert. They're probably scattered in different caves. Um, and he's trying to escape Saul because Saul keeps trying to kill him. Je Saul is jealous and worried that his son is not going to become the king after Saul's gone. So he wants to kill David and take matters in his own hands. Verse 1. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he's out doing war, he was told David is in the desert of En Gedi. Somebody's tattling on where David is. So what's the deal with En Gedi? Well, En Gedi is an oasis near the Dead Sea. It doesn't always look like this. Sometimes it's very much dry, but it is a beautiful place with some water. And that would be really important if you're hiding out in caves, as you might imagine. So that's where David is. So Saul took, verse 2, uh, 3,000 chosen men. You're going to get the special forces out. I don't know why you need 3,000 to uh, eliminate one guy, but okay. Uh, from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. Of course, that place. It's a great place. Crags of the wild goats. Verse 3. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there. And Saul went in to relieve himself. And David and his men... We're far back in that same cave. This is made for junior high ministry. You're welcome. <laughs> Saul goes into the cave. Why? Because when you got to go potty in the wilderness and it's in the daytime, there's no trees to hide behind. So you might as well go into a cave. It might be cooler in there. You can spend a little, time, a little quality time reading the newspaper. I don't know. But he goes in to go potty. Okay? So he probably puts his robe out of the way because, you know, going potty in the in the in the woods. It's hard, right? So he's figuring out how to assume the position and he's doing his thing and he's not alone. Can you imagine having an audience? Right? Verse four, the men said, this is David's men saying to David, 
This is the day that the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Apparently there was some prophecy along the way that it's not recorded in the Bible, but that he had received probably maybe when he went to Nob, that this was gonna happen. With, it's interesting, God is not saying what's going to happen. He's just saying it's going to happen. Watch for it. Then David crept up unannounced and cut off the corner of Saul's robe while he's doing his duty. Verse five, afterward, David was conscious stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to this man, oh, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed or lift up my hand against him for he is the anointed of the Lord. Anointed meaning the one who's chosen by God and empowered by the Holy Spirit to be the king. So cutting off part of the robe, you're like, come on, David, that's not a big deal. You could have killed him. This would have been a, a, a much bigger sin as if sins have bigger and smaller, right? But what was this reminding us of? Well, it's reminding me of 1 Samuel 16, where Saul is grabbing Samuel, the prophet. And as he's grabbing him, he tears off the tzitzit, the little corner of his robe, which, which is supposed to speak of his authority, and he tears it off. And I can imagine Saul looking at it, and Samuel says, this day your ki the kingdom has been torn from you, and it will be given to another, a man after God's own heart. That's David. Cutting off part of the robe would actually indicate a loss of authority. The robe was a symbol of Saul's royalty. And in some ways, David is feeling bad because he's actually taken part of his authority away, at least from a, from a symbolic standpoint. David's grieved because he doesn't want to overstep and take things into his own hands. He realizes that he's got to leave timing to God. And the tzitzit, here's a picture right here. You might remember this from earlier in the series we talked about. It's the same uh, part of the robe that the woman in Mark 5, who has the, the issue of bleeding for 12 years, reaches out and just touches the tassel on Jesus' robe and she's instantly healed. Why? Because it's what carries authority. It seems strange to us in our culture, but this was a symbol of their authority. A contrast to this is, is actually Jonathan, who after David kills Goliath with his sling, Jonathan says, here's my sword, here's my bow, here's my belt, and here's my robe. Meaning, here's the kingdom, I'm giving it to you. In 1 Samuel 23, Jonathan says, you are going to be the king and I'm going to be right next to you. As the prince, he's already given the kingdom away to David. Well, on with our narrative Verse, it's a great story, isn't it? Verse seven, with these words, David rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. Um, the Hebrew word for rebuking his men here is literally to tear up. David tore him up with his words, which is just a play on words here. This is how brilliantly God writes the Bible. And David steps in and prevents his men. They're like, let me at him, let me at him. no. You're not going to put your hand on the one that God has chosen. So God delivers Saul up to David, just as he apparently had said before. 
Why? To test the patience and the faith of David. Would David trust God's timing or take things into his own hands and... Now, God doesn't tempt anyone. We know that from scripture. And he really wants us to leave things in his hands. I'm thinking about Romans 12. It's in the New Testament. It's a a letter that Paul writes to the, the people in Rome. Has this theme. I think this is perhaps appropriate to share. Verse 17. Do not repay evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends. Leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. So God says, you don't have to worry about getting back at somebody. I got that. I got this. But how often do we plot and plan and dream up and rehearse in our minds ways to get back at people that did something to us. I don't know about you, but like when I'm driving and someone cuts me off and almost kills me, I immediately think, what can I do to get back at them? Maybe it's just me. You guys are all so pure. You would never think that, right? But I'm like, I could imagine a paintball gun mounted to the front of my car that I could like shoot their car with paintballs. That wouldn't hurt them, but it would make a big mess, right? You get what I'm saying. There's a whole lot of things that happen in our life where we feel like we've been picked on, we've been targeted, someone has mistreated us, someone has spoken ill of us or, or wrongly to us, and we want to have them hurt in return. I think it's human nature. So who are you thinking about getting back at? Verse eight. Then David went out of the cave and called to Saul, my Lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? David honors Saul by calling him my Lord and bows down. He's not being... He's not being sarcastic. He's being honoring. And now he's going to go on to try to make a case for himself. He really wants to change Saul's mind. So Saul stops hunting him down. He says this, This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. And I said, I will not lift lift my hand against my master because he is the Lord's anointed. Verse 11, see my father, look at this piece of robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but I did not kill you. Now understand and recognize that I'm not guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. He's calling him father. Why? Because it's his father-in-law. There's relationship. He's appealing to relationship. Verse 12. May the Lord judge between you and me. And may the Lord avenge the wrongs that you have done to me. But my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. David says, I'm going to trust God to vindicate myself. I'm not going to fight back. 
Verse 14, against whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom are you pursuing? A dead dog, a flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. Verse 16, when David finished saying this, Saul asked, is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. Saul is trapped in his own prison of self-focused, but he's still a man. And he is broken by this kind of kindness. You are more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. Verse 18. You have just now told me of the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. Verse 20. I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Mic drop. Saul just confessed that David's going to be the king. Let's stop right there. He finally confesses. He knows that David will be the next king. This is a really significant moment of confession. But Saul doesn't stop hunting David. Why? Because Saul believes that if he keeps working, his actions on earth here can actually change God's plans. Instead of trusting God, he begins playing God. Then like Jonathan before him, he says in verse 21, Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. This is the same thing that Jonathan asks for when they make an oath and a covenant to one another, Jonathan and David. Please don't kill my family. When, when we're gone. This was common in the ancient world. You would eliminate any potential heirs to the throne, any kind of competitive, you know, personalities. Verse 22, so David gave his oath to Saul and then Saul returned home. But David and his men went back up to the stronghold. He's like, no, I'm not going back with you. So David makes a promise here and he makes good on that promise. We'll see that later in the, in the series. Most of Saul's male relatives are actually killed in war before David becomes king. But there's one particular um, man who he's very kind to. I can't wait to share that with you later in the series. So if you usurp the throne, if you take the throne, you wipe out the rivals. And this leads us to our first leadership axiom. There's four leadership axioms. I'm just going to make a quick brief stopover on as we go through. The first is this one. Um, Confident, legitimate leaders bless what came before them instead of pointing to what was wrong and broken. You know, whether you're becoming a new shift manager at your work and there was someone who was in that before, that job before, Whether you're teaching a class at the university or at the college and there was someone who used to do it before. Whether you've, you've become a coach and there was a coach before you or you're a pastor and you stepped into a position where there was a pastor before you. You have options. 
on whether you're going to curse what came before to make yourself look better or if you'll bless it and continue to lead forward. Oftentimes, horrible leaders will try to vilify whatever happened before, right or wrong, to try to make themselves look good. As people of God, as good leaders, as influencers, as parents, we need to be ones who are willing to bless what was past. Well, on with our passage. The writer of 1 Samuel records this incredible moment, this moment of self-control where David, it would have been so easy for him. You would think all of his problems would have been solved. He had a prophetic word that the Lord was going to deliver him. Of course, this is what you do, but there is a value for life. There is an ability to see God's glory and the choosing of Saul by God and that therefore I will not rush and help God's timing by eliminating Saul I will bless and not curse. I will leave vengeance to God. So as soon as Saul utters the truth that David's going to be the next king, I think it's the segue that releases the aged Samuel, our favorite prophet, to die and to go to heaven. Why? Because the next verse says it in chapter 25, verse 1. Now Samuel died. And all Israel assembled and mourned for him. And they buried him at his home in Ramah. And David then moved on down to the desert at Moan. So Samuel's work is done. Oh, wait, we'll have him one last time in a surprise visit. Wait for that next few weeks. But David heads down south. He's going south and west into the Judean desert. He's hiding from Saul, of course. Doing a little cave dwelling. He's got the men with him. Uh, and he, his men encounter a man in the area of Carmel. And this is a foolish man. And since they're not fighting, they take on the role of the Good Samaritans, if you will. They're like the wilderness police. They make sure that uh, the shepherds that are out there don't get uh, robbed by these band of you know, different tribes and, and raiders, if you will. So what happens here? Verse two, a certain man in Maon who had property there at Carmel was very wealthy. He had a thousand goats and 3,000 sheep. Of course, that's wealthy, which he was shearing in Carmel. His name was Nabal and his wife's name was Abigail. And she was an intelligent and beautiful woman, but her husband... A Calebite was surly and mean in his dealings. And while David was in the desert, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. So Nabal literally means fool. Not just like foolish, like silly. It's one who lives as if there is no God. Mr. David writes a psalm, Psalm 14, where he talks about this. And he says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. So if you want to read a little bit about Nabal or who I think David is thinking about, you can read Psalm 14. So he's a surly, a surly character. Abigail, meanwhile, her name means my, my father is joyous. She's sensible and beautiful, the Bible says. Ooh, right on. My father is joyous. That could be your name. Because the heavenly father delights over you and you bring joy to his heart. 
Even when you feel like you are the furthest from him, even when things aren't going right, even when you feel uh, blasted by shame and guilt, your father is joyous over you. You're gonna see that she plays a very big role here. Verse six, so the sheep shearing time, and this is a big party time. We're gonna have a huge feast, lots of food, lots of going on. So David sends 10 young men and said to them, go up to Nabal at Carmel and greet him in my name. Hey, I'm from David. And say to him, long life to you, good health to you and to your household. That sounds very Victorian. And good health to all that is yours. Verse seven, now I hear that it's sheep shearing time. When your shepherds were with us, uh, we did not mistreat them. And the whole time there at Carmel, nothing of theirs was missing. We protected them. They didn't get anything ripped off. Verse eight, ask your own servants. They will tell you, therefore be favorable toward my young men. Since we've come at a festive time, please give your servants and your son, David, whatever you can find for them. Ah, bread, sword, whatever you got laying around. That'd be great. Verse nine, when David's men arrived, they gave Nabal, Nabal this message in David's name. And they, then they waited. Nabal answered David's servants, who is this David? Who is the son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Verse 11. Why should I take my bread and my water and the meat that I have slaughtered for my shears and give it to the men coming from who knows where? David's men turned around and went back. When they arrived, they reported every word. And then he said this, and then I did this, and I went, and I, it's customary in that culture to reward those who protect you. This was not a crazy request. I mean, it would be weird if your neighbor came over and said, it's time to feed me, what's for dinner? I mean, that'd be weird. But if it was someone who was actively serving you in this culture, this would be the right thing to do to, to give them something. And yet Nabal is into mine, 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 mine and totally dishonors David. So verse 13, David said to his men, put on your swords, right? So they put on their swords and David put on his. He's gonna get in the action too. About 400 men went up with David. That's gonna be overkill, by the way. You don't need 400 men to take care of this job. But while 200 men stayed with the supplies, what's happening here? David is letting his anger and his temper get the best of him. He's forgetting who he is, what his identity is, the fact that he's the Lord's anointed, that he's the future king. He's ready to destroy this man who has said something bad about him. He wants revenge. He's being tempted to sin by unnecessarily killing this foolish man to take revenge instead of really trusting that God will avenge him. It's another opportunity for God to refine the character of David and prepare him to be a good king. And it's interesting when we are tempted, God always provides a way of escape. This is what 1 Corinthians 10 says. If you think you're standing strong, be careful not to fall. The temptations in your life are no different than what others experience. But God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you're tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. God is about to graciously give David a way out and give him a wake-up call and allow him to be able to do the right thing. Verse 14, 
One of the servants told Nabal's wife, Abigail, David sent messengers from the desert to our giver, give our master his greetings. And then he hurled insults at them. These men were very good to us. They did not mistreat us. And the whole time we were out in the fields near them, nothing was missing. Night and day, they were like a wall around us. All the time we were herding our sheep near them. Now think it over and see what you can do because disaster is hanging over our master and his whole household. And he is such a wicked man that no one can talk to him. So Nabal, he is what we'll call a leader who is unapproachable. Abigail, she is not the leader of the household. However, in that culture at least, but she was approachable and the servants come to her. It reminds me a little bit of Michael Scott, who says, I do, I do think I'm very approachable, but maybe I need to be a more approachabler. <laughs> I don't know that Michael Scott gets it, and certainly Nabal doesn't either. So don't be like either of those guys. The axiom is this, leadership axiom, good leaders are approachable. I read a quote by uh, Skip Pritchard, who said this, being present is the key to approachability. And not overscheduling is one key to being present. Some of you think, oh, that's a business thing, Andrew. Why are you bringing that in? Because a lot of us do business. And the truth is that if you want to be approachable, you've got to be emotionally present in that moment. That means that as a parent, you don't have your head in the newspaper or your iPad or whatever when your kids are asking you a question. It means you stop, you put it down. You say, okay, I'm with you. It means that when your spouse is trying to talk to you and you're watching a game, and that would be me. Uh-huh, 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 uh-huh. Am I really present? No. No, we're close. There's a hundred ways where we fail to be present with one another. If we want to truly love one another, we will be present in the moment with each other. And if that means that you need to throw this thing away, throw that thing away. I'm amazed that I go to restaurants. I mean, every once in a while I go to restaurants. I used to go to restaurants. How many people are sitting together, the two of them, and they're both looking at their phones. And it's like, y'all know you're, each you're, are you texting each other? What are you doing? So I don't want to talk too long on this, but as people of God, if we want to love one another, we've got to learn how to be approachable and present. And in this case, she is, Abigail is. She's a wise woman. We're gonna see that verse, the next verse, 18. Abigail lost no time. She took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five dressed sheep, five sails of roasted grain, 100 cakes of raisins, 200 cakes of pressed figs, and loaded them on donkeys. Verse 19. Then she told her servants, go on ahead, I'll follow you. And she did not tell her husband, Nabal. Good move. As she came riding her donkey, into a mountain ravine, there was David and her men descending toward her, and she met them. They're like running down with their swords on, ready to like dispatch people. And she's like riding her donkey up, hoping that she's going to get there in time. Verse 21. David had just said, 
it's been useless. All my watching over this fellow's property in the desert so that nothing of his was missing. He paid me back evil for good. May God deal with David. It's funny that he's calling himself David in the third, per, third, third person, but be it ever so severely, if by morning I leave alive one male of all those who belong to him. Dun, dun, dun. Verse 23. When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey. She bowed down before David with her face to the ground. By the way, this is how David approached Saul in the first passage, with reverence and honor. She fell at his feet and said, My Lord, let the blame be on me alone. Please let your servant speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. May the Lord pay no attention to that wicked man, Nabal. That's interesting. I don't know how many of you wives would call your husband a wicked man, you know, Andrew or whatever, but uh, here it is. He is just like his name. His name is full and folly goes after him. But as for me, your servant, I did not see the men my master sent. Verse 26. Now, since the Lord has kept you, my master, from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands, as surely as the Lord lives and as surely as you live, may your enemies and all who intend to harm my master be like Nabal. And let this gift which your servant has brought to my master be given to the men who follow you. Verse 28, please forgive your servant's offense for the Lord will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my master because he fights the Lord's battles. Let no wrongdoing be found in you as long as you live. Leadership axiom stuck in here in the middle of here. Leaders take responsibility. She's taking responsibility. Verse 29, even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, they know exactly what's going on. The life of my master will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord, your God. But the lives of your enemies will, will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. She's a wise woman. She's going, oh yeah, I know about that. I know about that sling you used in the Valley of Elah where you took down that, that Goliath. We sing the song about that. We hear it on the radio that you've, you've slain your ten thousands. That's what's going to happen. You, he's like, you remember that? It's a pretty great time. Verse 30. When the Lord has done for my master every good thing he promised concerning him and, his appointed, and has appointed him leader over Israel, my master will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or of having avenged himself. And when the Lord has brought my master's success, remember your servant. She says all the right things. Basically, she's saying this. Please, please, please don't do this. This isn't an action worthy of a prince of Israel. Remember who you are. Remember God's anointing. Remember about mercy. Don't stoop to fighting grudge battles. Your job is fighting the battles of the Lord. So she's stepping in and going, don't, 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 don't. Does, do, you, do you recognize that posture? from the last passage where David says, don't, 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 don't kill Saul, even though he's going potty in the cave and you got him right here. She says, don't, 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 don't kill Nabal. It's, you're, you're above this. Are you willing to play that role and stop someone in their tracks before they go and try to get revenge? To admonish them? It's so commendable too that David listens. He doesn't interrupt. He carefully considers these wise words. 
And he changes his course of action. Leadership axiom. Leader, leader, good leaders are good listeners. I love this Andy Stanley quote. Leaders who refuse to listen will eventually be surrounded by people who have nothing helpful to say. So he listens. Verse 32, David said to Abigail, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you today to meet me. May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. I almost blew it. Thanks so much. Verse 34, otherwise, as surely as, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has kept me from harming you, if you had not come quickly to meet me, not one male belonging to Nabal would have been left alive by daybreak. Verse 35, then David accepted from her hand what she had brought him and said, go home in peace. I have heard your words and granted your request. So Ab Abigail goes home, tells her husband what she did. This, he, she basically saved his life. 10 days later, he falls over and he dies. David goes, aha, this is a woman worth snatching. So David sends men to ask her to be his wife, which is a little bit like uh, passing notes in school where it's like, do you like me? Check yes or no. And you hand it to him, right? But the truth is that David lost his temper. We lose our temper. David forgot his identity. We often forget who we are. David's on the verge of becoming another Saul who's willing to kill anyone who gets in his way or threatens him. He's self, looking like self-centered. But in the midst of it, you have a wise woman who says, no, 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 you're, you're above this. Then the bonus blessing is he gets a great wife. Because in verse 42, she quickly got on her donkey. Apparently donkeys are like the, it's like a Volvo of the day. And uh, attended, attended by her five maids and went to David, with David's messengers and became his wife. David also had married Anoam of Jezreel and they were both his wives. So he's got two wives. I know it's going to be a problem later. And then of course, Saul had given his daughter, Michael, David's wife to another guy, Paltiel. That's painful. There's a lot of family stuff that's going to be brewing here in the future. So in the desert, David Lee learns this really valuable lesson uh, that's going to help in this next scene, this third and final scene, this nighttime scene, and where he's tempted again to take things into his own hands and to kill Saul and to help out God's timing. God doesn't need any help with his timing. And David is learning these valuable lessons. So 1 Samuel 26, I know the screen says 25, but it's really 26, right? promise. So the Ziphites went to Saul at Gibeah and said, hey, uh, David, pff, he's hiding uh, on the hill uh, over here. Um, so Saul went down to the desert of Ziph with 3,000 of his chosen men. Once again, he always travels with 3,000. I don't understand it. There to search for David. Verse three, Saul made his camp beside the road on the hill, but David stayed in the desert. Uh, when he saw that Saul had followed him there, he sent out scouts and learned that Saul had definitely arrived. So here's our third scene. It's nighttime in the desert. Saul's camping out under the stars with 3,000 of his closest buddies, sleeping all around him to keep him safe. 
and verse 5. Then David set out and went to the place where Saul had camped. And he saw where Saul and Abner, son of Ner, Abner is like the, the commander of the army. He's, he's the big, the, the top dog. They had laid down and Saul was laying inside the camp with the army encamped all around him. Verse six, David then asked Ahimelech the Hittite and Abishai, Joab's brother, who will go down into the camp with me to Saul? Who's gonna go on a suicide mission with me? I'll go with you, says Abishai. Abishai is one of David's mighty men. He's awesome. So verse seven, so David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there was Saul lying asleep inside the camp with his spear stuck into the ground near his head, and Abner and the soldiers were lying around him. Verse 8, Abishai said to David, today God has delivered your enemy into your hands. Does this sound familiar? And now let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of my spear. I won't strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? Next verse, as surely as the Lord lives, he said, the Lord himself will strike him. Either his time will come and he will die or he will go into the battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Now get the spear and the water jug that are by his head and let's go. He's going, hey, I just learned this really valuable lesson last chapter that like God has timing and he could take Saul out whenever he wants. So we're going to leave it to him. Verse 12, So David took the spear and the water jug near Saul's head and they left and no one saw or knew about it, nor did anyone wake up. Why? Because they were all sleeping. Why? Because the Lord had put them into a deep sleep. This is the deep sleep all of us pray for every night. And they were lulled to sleep. It's just so kindness to the Lord. The Lord's like, I'm going to get my stuff done. Plus, I'm going to give you a great night's sleep. Here you go. Then David crossed over to the other side and stood on the top of the hill some distance away where there was a space between them. Notice, God enters the world and does things on behalf of his people. He's still doing that for us today. If you think God is a long ways off and he's just wound up the world and set it spinning and just taken like an eternal break, you're wrong. God is always moving, always working. He's always inviting us into a place of partnering with him and praying and want, we, we want to see God move and we do when we're watchful. Still moving. So David gets a little ways away where he's safe. Verse 14, he calls out to the army and Abner, of son, son of Ner, Aren't you going to answer me, Abner? Abner replied, uh, Who are you and who, call, who is it that calls the king? David said, You're a man, aren't you? And who is like you in Israel? Why didn't you guard the, your lord, the king? Someone came to destroy your lord, the king. Verse 16, What you have done is not good. As surely as the Lord lives, you and your men deserve to die because you did not guard your master. The Lord's anointed. Look around you. Where's the king's spear and the water jug that was near his head? Verse 17. Saul recognized David's voice and said, is that your voice, David, my son? David replied, yes, it is, my Lord, the king. And he added, why is my Lord pursuing his servant? What have I done? And what am I guilty of? It's so interesting that as a son, I can relate to David. That even in the end of Saul's life and in his difficulty, I'm still looking for some fathering from that figure. 
I think David is, continues to try to see things get reconciled and it's breaking his heart. Now, verse 19, let my Lord, the king, listen to his servant's words. He's still trying to defend himself. If the Lord has incited you against me, then may he accept an offering. But if, if however, men have done it, may they be accursed before the Lord. They now have driven me from my share in the Lord's inheritance and have said, go serve other gods. Now, do not let my blood fall to the ground far from the presence of the Lord. Don't don't let me die out here in the desert where I'm so far away from where I worship God in the tabernacle. The king of Israel has come out to look for a flea as one who hunts for a partridge in the mountains. Verse 21, then Saul said, I have sinned. Come back, David, my son, because you considered my life precious today. I will not, I will, I will not try to harm you again. Yeah, not so much. Surely I have acted like a fool. It's interesting. We had Nabal the fool in the last passage, right? And have erred greatly. Verse 22. Here's the king's spear. David answered. Let one of your young men come over and get it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and faithfulness. The Lord delivered you into my hands today. But I would not lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Verse 24. It's the end of the passage. As surely as I valued your life today. So may the Lord value my life. And deliver me from all trouble. Then Saul said to David. May you be blessed. My son, David, you will do great things and surely triumph. So David went on his way and Saul returned home and they never saw one another again. This is the end of their relationship. And in the end, miraculously, though Saul is a broken, self-centered man, he still recognizes what's true. And he speaks a blessing over David prophetically about a great future as the leader. David's more resolved than ever to trust God's timing. He's learned these three lessons, all one after the next. And he's resolved to allow God to work out the details and the timing of his life. Certainly, he learned a very valuable lesson in each of these chapters. David has learned patience and restraint. Following God is much better than taking things into your own hands. And what about the timing of your life? What is it that you believe that God has promised you, that you've been praying for, you've been waiting for? You, you feel like you're in the waiting room and yet you feel like God is slow in keeping his promises. The Bible actually says God is not slow in keeping his promises. God is a God of 11.59 when you need it at midnight. God is the God of December 31st when he said he would do it this year. It's oftentimes when we're waiting for him that he does his greatest work in us, shaping us and helping us learn the lessons that we need in order to move into that next season. But where is it that timing is difficult for you today? Where is it that you need to invite someone else in to pray with you and to wait with you and to cry with you and to sit with you and then rejoice with you when you finally get breakthrough? Whatever that place of longing in your heart is, God wants to minister to you in it and he wants to bring someone else in the flesh to sit with you, to bear 
one another's burdens and love. So if you'd stand, I just want to pray for you because probably there's something in your life that you're waiting for God to come through on. Probably there's something where you feel like God has taken you on the extended tour when you really wanted to just go from point A to point B straight. But there's something God wants you to see, to learn, and to hear. So Lord, as we struggle through this life and try to trust your timing, I pray that you would help us be good, good sons and daughters that would continually look and find mothers and fathers in our life that will walk with us and speak wisdom and, and give us their hope, their faith, and their courage to be able to keep moving forward. God, I pray for the longing of hearts that are here and that are listening on the stream where there's things that are so painful, where people have been waiting for years and years. God, in the midst of the waiting, would your presence just be thick and beautiful, rich, loving. So thank you for working in our lives. Thank you for entering into the world, for saving us, for loving us, and for putting us on a path for good things. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you today. Make sure you take your trash with you. If you're watching on the stream, we bless you in the name of Jesus. We ask God to meet you right where you are. You are important and you're loved and God has things for you today. So may God bless you as well. And if you're in the house, we've got prayer on the way out. Uh, we'll see you next week.